0: Hi, this is the Robberator, and you can support my mad grab for power and the Sword and Laser podcast by going to Patreon.com/slash Sword and Laser.
1: Hey, everyone, welcome to the Sword and Laser. I'm Veronica Belmont, and I'm Tom. Sword and Laser is a book club, but it's so much more. We bring you author interviews, news from the world of science fiction and fantasy, and awesome discussions from fans just like you.
0: Sometimes awesome interviews with authors
2: like today.
1: Yes, we are very pleased to welcome back onto the show author Brad Bullier. Welcome back.
2: Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me on again.
1: Of course. Um, So you have a new book coming out. I mean, you are really in the final stages of this thing. This is book two in the Song of the Shattered Sand series with Blood Upon the Sand. Can you tell us a little bit about the book and the story?
2: Yeah, I can. I'll just touch on the series very quickly. So this is book two in the series. And um, the elevator pitch that I use for the series is uh, A Game of Thrones meets Arabian Nights. So it's big, sweeping, epic fantasy. It focuses on a particular city, uh, a city-state in this large, vast desert, which has 12 kings who have ruled the desert with an iron fist uh, for 400 years. Uh, They made kind of a deal with the devil, um, and the devil, in this case, is the desert gods who have um, made this arrangement to keep the kings alive for some unknown reason. Uh, In steps our heroine, a girl named Cheda, who loses her mother when she was young, around eight or so, when we first meet her in the first book, uh, 12 Kings in Shark High. Um, and we we see her through the first book um, after revenge for what the kings did to her mother. They killed her when she was young and she never understood why. Um, and some of those secrets start to become revealed when she learns that there are poems hidden in the book that her mother left her. Um, so we starts to see what she does um, what her mother was doing, uh, at least to some degree, and it leads her to this greater knowledge of where she came from, where her mother came from, and what they, uh, including her mother, were trying to do with the kings and why. Um, And so without getting too spoiler about the first book, in the second book we see her learning a lot more about the kings. She has an in, so to speak, uh, inside the uh, the the ruling class. Um, she There are these uh, young women named Blade Maidens who are the first daughters of the kings um, and Cheda comes to know them and so it starts to expand on the story and we start to see more about how the kings gain their power and perhaps how she can use that to her advantage.
0: Now you mentioned Twelve Kings in Sharakai is the first book, that's book one, with right. uh, Blood Upon the Sand, book two, but there's also of Sand and Malice Made, which is in the Song of the Sat- Shattered Sands, but it's not book one or book two. Where does that fit in?
2: <laughs> yeah, there's, there's constant confusion for it. Um, so when the first book had come out, I wanted to write a couple of stories in between just to kind of keep the story alive as I was writing these big books, which, which take me quite a while. Um, and so I wrote these three interconnected tales. They're three novellas uh, that Daw Books, my, my primary U.S. publisher, Uh, picked up and we we combine that into a single story and that that became of sand and malice made so it happens uh, about five years before we meet Sheda in 12 Kings and um, in this desert there are these ancient creatures who were created by the God of Chaos Uh, they're very genie like um, and they uh, mostly stay outside of the city, but some of them sort of creep in and like to sort of examine and toy with humanity. Uh, and one of them becomes very interested in Cheda, uh, which is not good news for our heroine. And so that story unfolds over the course of those three interconnected novellas.
1: Is there a, uh, a recommended reading order? Is Would you read that one first, or does it fit in between the two books?
2: Um, it, so it... it it uh, chronologically happens before we meet her right. in 12 Kings, but um, some people have said that they liked having the background of 12 Kings. Other people say that Of Sand and Malice Made was a good intro because it's, it's shorter. You know, it's it's bite-sized as compared to this big meal of a book in 12 Kings. Um, so I, I usually recommend, um, if depending on people's tastes, if they're just looking for something shorter, go ahead and try Of Sand and Malice Made because I was careful not to put too many spoilers in. So actually either way is okay, but given my preference of larger books, I would probably say 12 Kings and then pick up and Malice Maid and just see, you know, what, what happened with her beforehand.
0: One of the interesting things about ancillary content like that, uh, which you see George R. R. Martin do it, you see Patrick Rothfuss do it, is you have to have a really well-developed setting, a really well-developed world to be able to do that. How did you go about developing this world?
2: Yeah, so one of the things that I, um, when I first started writing, I was not, I mean, I would, I guess, call myself a world builder in general, but I would try to, like, work out the plot and the world at the same time, and that didn't really work out for me very well. Um, In later (laughs) books, I've really tried hard to lay the groundwork early, um, and in fact, years early, before I start writing, um, I start collecting ideas, uh, expanding upon the magic and the, the world itself, what it's like, um, some of the history of the people and the places. Uh, and I do that so that I can understand the characters better uh, because it, it, it used to, I used to get so wrapped up in trying to figure out what everyone was doing and what the world was like at the same time and they would just confuse each other, frankly. Um, and having that sort of bedrock in place really helps. Uh, so. Um, One of the things that I like to to do and I recommend to people is start a Pinterest board to collect all of your um, thoughts on images and just it it really helps with tone. It can help a lot with uh, uh, the the garb that people wear in that time period and also uh, architecture um, on and on Um, and so I start to use that to develop the world to a to a pretty good degree. It's you know it's not to Tolkien you know level of description, but um, I have a good idea, and that really helps ground me as I work on the story itself. So I had that in hand when I started to work on Twelve Kings first of all, and then when I went back and started to toy with this idea of these genie-like creatures and you know what they would want, where they came from. Um, and how they sort of fit into this this you know grand mosaic in the city of Sharakai. Uh, so it was um it was actually fairly easy because by that point I knew Cheda very well and it was just kind of a matter of um, figuring out where how the this genie was going to fit into the the city, how they hide themselves and how she became aware of Chada and became interested in her.
1: I love the idea of world building with something like Pinterest because it really is a, a giant mood board of sorts, yeah. and you're able to, to take content from all over the web and, and make this backlog of imagine of content what to Tolkien would have been able to do. Right? <laughs> oh really.
2: Yeah, when, when I first started using Pinterest, or before I started using Pinterest, before that was around even, uh, I would collect things and just grab the images and put them in a folder. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the great things about Pinterest is that, and I'm sure you guys have seen this as well, like once you get a few images, it has those associated images, right? So if you go focus on one, it shows you things that are sort of like it below. Hmm. Um, and so then you can get some more and pin those, and then you can get more from those that you've just pinned. And it, it's really a great um, great way to sort of expand web-like, you know, your your collection of images and, and influences.
1: Yeah, their you, their recommendation algorithm is is pretty top notch. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. Do
0: you sit down before writing and just kind of soak it up sometimes to to put you in the mood? It, it feels like a music playlist, which I know some authors do in the, in, in that way.
2: Yeah, I, um, I, so some sometimes I do, yes, um, especially when I'm feeling a bit lost. Um, and I obviously I use it for reference as well, um, sure. just to go and look at you know what people wear and things like that and food and. Um, and stuff but definitely like when I'm stuck on plot um, you know sometimes I'll work with what I mentioned like with world building I'll work with different threads and see how I've neglected to make them affect one another Um, but it's it's a constant source of inspiration to go back to the Pinterest board because it brings me back to that place that I was in my mindset when I was starting to to first form the story itself and it kinda reminds me where i wanted to take the story back then and that that's a really great place to bring yourself back to is like those original visions for what you wanted to do with the, with the the story as a whole
1: so when you're kind of getting to the point where you want to get into world building and you're thinking about what is the what's the bedrock going to be of this this story that i'm creating how, how do you even land on one theme because i mean the the pinterest board is great once you have a general idea of what you want to do but when there's, I mean this is a really basic question, I guess for any author really, but like how do you decide to to commit to a specific style or or, or world type
2: yeah i think I think some of that comes um, initially as you as you start to develop the early pieces like I had uh, you know before I even started the Pinterest board before I started world building, I had this notion of it, it, I'll mention what they ended up being just so you can have some grounding. There's these creatures who are called the Assyrim and they are protectors. They're called holy defenders by the kings. Uh, It turns out to be that there's more to that story than they're letting on, but that's what they tell everybody. Um, And they are like sort of mummy-like creatures, but it's clear that they are in some ways human as well. Um, And so they, they come into the city once every six weeks and they have a culling of sorts. They are given tributes uh, of live people they, and they are sacrificed for the greater good uh, so that they can continue protecting the city as a whole and um, before any of that stuff came, I just had this vision of this creature kind of walking around this desert mm. city street um, and and going after people you know so it's mm. I, I I do like dark fantasy and that was kind of where it was heading me um, and so that that started to it, it was the seed that a lot of things built around you know so, um yeah where does that stuff come from who knows you know we we get a spark and we like it and, and but then once you have it um i think it's great to to cultivate it in different ways um and you know we keep talking about pinterest and that's one way certainly but um just some of your influences that you've had i think are ingrained in us and those come out you know as we start to to work on story uh, but then it's important to start uh once you do have that that initial theme to complicate it you know because you can't just go with one uh, monotone throughout your story you have to start varying things um, and get sort of this layering effect uh, and so that that helps as well just sort of a randomization of influences to to make it more lifelike
0: now going from the wide of the the world building the whole wide world building uh, to the narrow how do you develop your characters like
2: shada yeah, good question.
0: Um, <laughs> <laughs> so do you have like, a separate Pinterest board for her? Or?
2: I don't. Um, you know, I think as as we as we start to get some idea of what the story is like, then it's a matter of figuring out who these people are and where they came from and what they want. Um, I, I attended a, a convention a while back, and um, Orson Scott Card used to do these talks at different conventions, and I think it was called "A Thousand Ideas in an Hour." Um, And the basic idea was that you would ask, um, you would start by saying, what is this story about? Who is this story about? Uh, And you'd start thinking about a particular character. It's this young woman. She is a pit fighter, let's say. That was one of the earliest things I knew about her. Uh, And, well, why is she a pit fighter? And um, I started to think about her mother. She was an orphan. She did this for money. Uh, Well, how does that relate to the kings and and so he would kind of go through this exercise where he would ask people and the interesting thing was That he would he would ask a a question like who is this person and and what do they want and why do they want it? And he would never take the first answer or the second answer or the third answer. He would wait until something interesting came along Hmm. Um, Like you know, how does Cheda know anything about her mother if she lost her when she was young she was eight years old You know, And so I had a number of different ideas, and then I stumbled on this notion of her getting information from her mother uh, through this book of poems. And there's hidden riddles uh, that she has to sort of unlock as the story unfolds. And that didn't come on the first try. They came as I worked on it for a while. And that is one of the greatest keys I have ever found in writing, is to be able to continue to push yourself as you ask these questions, be they world building questions, character building questions, um, magic, you know what the societies are like, on and on, how the plot is going to go. Um, you, you keep asking those questions until you find something that strikes you, that gives you interest, and that in turn just gives you drive, it, it, it gives you interest, and so the the words come and the ideas come down much easier. And so for me, it's kind of this um, uh, sort of layering effect. You know, I understand a little bit about the character and then I understand more and more and more. Uh, I I initially was um, when I first got into writing, I I come from a computer science background I thought I was going to be a very structured uh, writer as well I thought I was going to be a Brandon Brandon Sanderson-esque plotter you know, write 80 page synopses and then get into the writing and it would just go smoothly at that point. And I have just never been able to do that Um, I've always been a gardener, not an architect, and and part of the reason for that is that I can't answer all of those questions that I'm trying to ask myself until I I get into the writing and I hear their voice and I hear other people's voices and I start to fill in gaps between them. Um, So that helps me a lot as well. You know, I answer as much as I can up front, but that only takes me so far. I I have to get into the writing and and sort of let them speak a little bit to, to figure out the rest.
0: So your code is brilliant, but you don't have a flowchart.
2: <laughs> well, I was a different programmer than I am a writer for certain. But yeah, yeah.
1: I want to see the Kanban view of your of your writing tickets. That was super nerdy. Sorry. Um, <laughs> Super product manager nerdy. Yeah. Um, so this is something that's always kind of a complicated question to ask, but I'm, I'm always interested to hear uh, when when male authors are writing female leads, how do you get into that space? How do you write your female characters differently from your male characters?
2: So, um, A, who knows? Uh, you know, we, we have all kinds of influences from all, all across our life, and that, and that stuff you just try to project, you know, as well as you can. Uh, but I did grow up in a family with... Um, uh, Mom and dad, uh, dad worked at a, uh, automobile factory in Wisconsin. It was American Motors. They eventually got bought by Chrysler. Uh, and so he was a, you know, a typical blue collar worker, um, and was, you know, gone most of the day. And so, you know, I was raised by my mom for most of the time, um, until I got, you know, home and, um, and I, I had twin sisters as well. So they were one year older. Uh, so it was, you know, for me, a fairly female dominated upbringing. Um, and so I, I I've come to appreciate that a lot. I really value and feel Fortunate uh, that I grew up with two sisters and, and my mother and, and certainly my father was there. I look up to them um, still do uh, But it's I, I just I'm glad for that and so I use that in my fiction, you know, I, I I think I like to balance that a little bit better we talk in in especially the last you know bunch of years about How do we represent, you know, female women's roles in especially like fantastic societies? Mm -hmm. And, you know, some of the arguments go, well, this is how it was like back then. Women weren't in positions of power. And the counter argument, of course, is, well, you're reading stories about dragons and elves and magic. (laughs) This
1: is a made up world.
2: (laughs) Right. And yet you can't uh, dream that, that, uh, not dream, but you can't uh, imagine that, women would be, have places of power and so i, I think that's a, a silly argument on the, on the former case so i like exploring that i think that's a an interesting way to, to go about this so i really try to incorporate um and find ways and, and different ways for women to have power in my stories as well as men you know you know
1: alternately i think an equally uh, maybe not equally but another interesting question is why do dwarves always have scottish accents it doesn't make any sense
2: <laughs> Well, that's
0: just obvious. I mean,
1: clearly obvious.
0: The Scottish got their accent from the dwarves.
1: Oh, okay, okay. That was offensive, Tom.
2: (laughs) To whom? Don't call don't call all Scottish people dwarves. Dwarves of the Scottish. Now I'm offending dwarves too because they're like, are you very short, Veronica?
1: No, I'm not. I don't think so. Comparatively speaking. Anyhow, uh, so we have a question from our audience from Terp Kristen. Uh, she says his Goodreads bio says he started writing in college. What was he studying at the time? Did he eventually have a career in that field? I, I mean, assuming from what you've just said, p- perhaps computer science is the answer.
2: Yeah, I went to Milwaukee School of Engineering for computer science and engineering was my official degree, a bachelor's. Uh, and I went into, yeah, I went into computers. I did a lot of um, programming for, for years and years. Uh, my first job was at, um, Uh, astronautics in Milwaukee and computer-related job that is uh, and moved on to Eaton Corporation. I worked at a nuclear power plant for quite a number of years in Zion, Illinois, uh, working on a a simulator for their nuclear power plant there. Um, And yeah, I had a a full uh, career in that until just last year. Uh, Last August I was caught up in a, a layoff at IBM. I was at IBM for quite a few years too.
1: We did hear about that about the IBM layoffs. Mm, that was yeah. that was rough. That was a lot of people.
2: Yeah, yeah, that was. Uh, I was in the cloud division, um, and they've had, uh, they probably have two or three layoffs per year. But that was a pretty big one. It was seventeen thousand people, I think, mm. um, worldwide, uh, and their their cloud division was. Um, slow to to enter the market. Um, And they were kind of getting killed by uh, Microsoft and Oracle and other folks who had, you know, gotten in early and kind of established themselves. So they were just playing catch up and they had to to pull back, you know, and and kind of figure out how they were going to attack that space again.
1: Mm -hmm. So So go ahead, Tom.
0: I think you're going to ask the same thing I was. Are, Are you relying on books now or are you still going to split time between career and writing?
2: Well, um, we're, I'm going to give writing a go, and I have been. Um, so we, you know, we had the, the, the layoff that happened in August. I got a you know a bit of severance, and um, I have been writing uh, semi-seriously for almost 15 years at this point. And um, I knew something like this might happen, and I knew that I also wanted to do writing, you know, full time if I could. And so I had been planning on it for for quite some time. You know, I didn't I didn't need any of the the money that I had been getting from writing. So that was all socked away. You know, I was trying to, to build up what, whatever kind of nest I could that was separate from, you know, retirement. And so we're, we're giving it a go. Uh, I, I'm gonna try for at least you know, a couple of years and we'll just see how it pans out. And, and so far things are looking pretty good, but you, writing is so weird because the, the ways that you get paid uh, and how often is just really strange and unpredictable. Mm-hmm. And every publisher is slightly different. You know, I'm working with um, at this point seven different publishers on the new series, uh, some foreign publishers, and uh, just everybody has their own quirks. You know, about how they they turn the money in and whether or not you ever see royalties uh, and that sort of thing. So it's just a it's a weird it's a weird place to be because I was uh, throughout my whole career ever since high school I was just so used to getting steady paycheck every single week. You know, so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's definitely a transition, but we're gonna we're gonna give it a shot.
0: Now you mentioned you've been writing for fifteen years, and that's Terp Kristen's other question here: is what was the force that re-sparked your writing interest in the early two so, thousands?
2: Yeah, so I had tried um, just dabbling in college and just set it aside. I, I started writing, you know, a, a very um, traditional, um, derivative, high fantasy, um, you know, and it was my first shot and it was, it was fun. It was just kind of, you know, trying things on for size and, um, set it aside, you know, got it, picked up a new project years later and it it took me forever to, to get anywhere with it. And it was, I think it was at the point where I was on it for, I don't know, five, six years or something like that. And I'm like, I, I either have to like, you know, dedicate myself to this to some degree or just stop, you know, because it's not getting anywhere really. Um, At the time, I was living in California, in Orange County, uh, and I started going to... I'd been going to Gen Con, the gaming convention. Uh, It was in Kenosha, where I grew up. That's when I first heard about it and started going. It moved to Milwaukee, uh, and it was still there at the time. So I had been going to some of the writer's tracks there and started going to other local conventions. Um, Lost Con was one of them in in L.A., um, and other bigger writer uh, conventions, and... um, just started to to dedicate myself to it so it wasn't um, it was just a desire to to really dive in and commit and see if I really wanted to do it or not and the more I did it the more I liked it I mean it's it's something that I've really enjoyed the entire time and still do I love writing stories and I love talking to other people about the craft Um, it's way way harder than I ever gave it credit (laughs) for before I started doing it you know seriously um, and, it, you know, it's something that you'll never truly master, you know, so it's it's just a really fun field for me.
1: Well, thank you so much for taking the time today to tell us about the new book. So February 7th with Blood Upon the Sand, that's the, the launch date here in the U.S.? That's right. And in the U.K., it's two days later?
2: Yeah, February 9th.
1: Fantastic. And where can everyone follow your work online?
2: You can find me at Quillings.com. That's Q-U-I-L-L-I-N-G-S.com.
1: Awesome. And of course, as always, our show is currently entirely funded by our patrons. So thank you to all the folks who back our show. You can learn more about that over on patreon.com slash sword and laser.
0: And you can also support the show by buying books through our links, like, I don't know, like Brad's book, which you will find listed <laughs> along a lot of the other books we talk about at swordandlaser.com picks.
1: And as always, you can get in touch with us at feedback at swordandlaser.com. Our website is swordandlaser.com. All of our discussions happen over on goodreads.com slash swordandlaser. And you can call and leave us a voicemail at 415-7-SWORD-6. Brad, thank you so much.
2: Thanks for having me on, you guys. This is great.
1: We'll see you guys all next time. Bye.